All right, you may be seated. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter number 14, if you would. Thank you so much for letting me be here today. Dr. Getch, we sure do love you. Dr. R, uh, Brother Weaver, Dr. Weaver. Does Dr. Getch still wrap up every message better in five minutes than most guys in 40? Does he still do that? Uh, it, we called him the Terminator when I was here 20 years ago. We, he's half machine and half Holy Spirit, and he sleeps with his eyes open. Does he still sleep with his eyes open? You don't know, because he's half machine, that's right. I remember uh, 20 years ago I sat where you're at. I had just gotten saved. And I was getting my fire science degree in Prescott Valley, Arizona, and God wanted me to fight a different kind of fire. And so I enrolled at West Coast Baptist College, and I didn't know what God was going to do with my life. I had no plans. I didn't know what God was going to do, youth pastor, pastor, missionary. I just wanted to be used of God. And I showed up here, and they had a, they had a test, 100 questions to determine your Bible knowledge. And I'll, I'll tell you. When I took that test, I got two right out of 100. I thought I did pretty good because I didn't know that much. But four years later, I graduated. Actually, four and a half years. I crammed four years into four and a half years. And uh, some of my friends graduated cum laude. As Toby Weaver says, I graduated praise the laude. Uh, that's how I graduated. I took that same test four years later. And I will tell you, I doubled my score. I got four out of 100, right? <laughs> it was a wonderful thing. I showed up here to the college. In fact, I met my wife here, my wife Shonda. We've been married for 16 years. We have four kids. Met her right here, right here in the front. In fact, we got married right up here. I have a lot of good memories here, and God's been so good to my life. I remember showing up here, and after I'd gotten saved and settled my salvation, God was testing my faith. That's why the Bible says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience and let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and entire wanting nothing and God was testing my faith and he has been throughout my entire Christian life and when I showed up here I had trouble paying my school bill in fact the way I showed up here is Dr. R and I had a in Prescott Valley Arizona uh, we were playing horse and he said if I beat you in horse would you listen to me about coming to West Coast. I said, sure, and he smoked me, like he killed me. And uh, so I listened to his spiel, and I came here. I'm thankful for that. And uh, I, remember, I remember coming here and really struggling with my school bill. And of course, um, every single chapel, um, Dr. R would come up, and he would say, I need to see these people after chapel, right over here by the ghetto. Does he still do this? And then he went off through all these names, and he mentioned my name. And this was about the fourth semester that I was here. It's my sophomore year. And every single semester, Dr. R would tell you I was late with, on my school bill. Has anybody else in here like that? Uh, you guys struggle with your school bill. You're struggling with paying that bill. Anybody else here like that? Okay, wow. I guess uh, I was the only one. <laughs> and so, so he called my name, and I went, to, um, I went and met with him. He said, you know, if you don't have that school bill paid, up to a certain amount, you're going to have to go home. And for me, I didn't have anywhere else to go. My mom was going through a divorce, and my dad uh, was living in a camper trailer out in the desert. And if I didn't pay my school bill, I was literally homeless. And so I remember going out to where the uh, Heritage Hall was in my dorm room, and I, for the first time in my Christian life, my short Christian life, I knelt next to my, my bed, and I started to cry out to God. 
for the first time, like literal tears, complaining, complaining to God. Do you know what the most common prayer is in the Bible? It's a lament. A lament is a complaint. How many of you are good at complaining? The Bible teaches if you're good at complaining, you're good at praying. And that day I was complaining to the Lord and I was praying to him. And, and, I, and I remember saying to him, God, you sent me here. You want me here. Lord, I'm asking you to pay the school bill. I'm asking you to provide. I don't know what you're doing. And I remember it was the first time in my Christian life where I was really real and honest with God. And God was testing and trying my faith. And what I want to talk to you about today is what keeps us from trusting God. Listen, Jesus has one mission, to save and to abide in you. And Jesus satisfies completely. And if you have Jesus, you have everything you need for life and happiness. See, God is love, joy, and peace. These commodities are spiritual that only God can give us. And not just for us to experience, but for us to become and for others to enjoy fruit from our life as well. And our mission is to trust in him. Now, his mission was to come and seek and to save us. Our mission is to trust him. When you study the life of the disciples, they were there learning how to trust God throughout their life. Now, our passage that I mentioned in Mark chapter 14 reveals three reasons why we stop trusting God. And maybe the, maybe the greatest lesson you're going to learn here in Bible college is not necessarily in the classroom. It's God testing your faith outside the classroom. It's God helping you learn how to trust him daily. How to trust him daily. Lord, would you help us today to learn how to trust you? Lord, when our, one of our children has cancer, when our church is going through a struggle, Lord, when we hit the physical health barriers, Lord, I pray that all, throughout all those moments in life, you would help us to trust you daily. And I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. You know, God's choice servants were always forged through the fiery furnace of affliction. I think a lot of us here say, I want God to use me. It's like, great, I'm glad you want God to use you, but do you realize what that entails? Like, you have to go through some hard times. A faith that can't be tested, can't be trusted. So what's, what stops people from trusting God? Well, in our passage, let me reveal to you, number one, idolatry. Idolatry. So Jesus had just been taken away, about to be taken away to be crucified for the sins of mankind. And I want you to see this one character in our passage that had a problem. He couldn't see Jesus for who he truly was. And he trusted something else other than God. And his name's Judas. Look with me in verse number 46, or 43, if you would. Verse 43, it says, And immediately while he yet spake, cometh Judas, one of the twelve, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Verse 44, And he that betrayed him had given him them a token, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss... That same as he, take him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he was come, he goeth straightway to him and saith, Master, Master, and kissed him. Now, here is a man who walked with God and was one of the biggest hypocrites in the Bible. And the reason why he was such a hypocrite is because he had an idol in his life. He had an idol that was in the way of his relationship 
with God. Now, we don't see Judas necessarily bowing down to an idol, and that's because we oftentimes fail to grasp what a real idol is. So an idol is this. It's anything that you deem necessary or essential for your happiness. In other words, I, ca I cannot be happy unless I have this thing or I have this person in my life. That's what an idol was. And the idol that Judas had was money and position and power. And we find that when Judas finds out that Jesus wasn't going to be the king, wasn't going to make him rich, he says, well, I better make something off of him and sold him for 30 pieces of silver. Now, if you go back to the beginning of chapter 14, let me introduce you to another person, a woman with the alabaster box. Look in verse number three. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious, and she broke the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And the people who complained about this and had indignation, they didn't really care about the poor. They cared about making money. And Jesus says, leave her alone. Why trouble ye her? And she, she hath wrought a good work on me, for ye have the poor with you always, and whatsoever you will, you may do them good, but me you, not, you don't always have. And she hath done what she could. She hath come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel, this good news, shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done, she shall be spoken of her for a memorial for her. And so here we are today in 2021 talking about her sacrifice and her gift to Jesus Christ. She found Jesus to be of more value than the expensive ointment. And Judas found that money was of more value than Jesus. And what's so interesting about idolatry is, this is the irony of idolatry, is we trade in the bread of life, Jesus, for a crumb. It's like whatever it is that you and I deem necessary and essential for our happiness, we're trading in the bread of life, who is life and joy and happiness and love, for a little breadcrumb. It's not fulfilling. See, Judas then masked his idolatry with religious facade. So we could have taken that alabaster box and we could have sold it and, and really given it to the poor as if he really cared about the poor. And this is how religious people serve their idols. We often do this when we want something from God. We make God an accomplice and our effort to get something from him. And so we pray and say, God, would you please pay my school bill? And God may be saying, well, I would love to, but if I did, then you would replace me with that. I have people in my church who pray for their health, that they would get better, and God's not answering their prayer requests. And, and oftentimes he is, because his grace is sufficient in those times, but I wonder as if God answered their prayer request that they would actually replace God with it. James 4.4 4 says, From whence comes wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your own lusts, that war in your members, your body? You lust and have not, you kill and desire to have and cannot obtain, you fight and war, you have not because you ask not, 
You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust. Listen, there is a fundamental difference between getting something from God and getting more of God. And when God is the end, not the means to an end, then Christianity becomes thrilling. It's incredible when it's just you and God, not you trying to get things from God that you're going to replace him with one day. It's just having God. Because everything you need for life and happiness is in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says, I've learned to be content. I've learned how to abound. I've learned how to be abased. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. I really don't need anything because I have everything in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to imagine, this is how we treat God. I want you to imagine a wedding. I love weddings, Dr. R. I love them. And uh, I just did one this last weekend. Because I get the best seat in the house. I get, to, I get to do their vows. I get to see them up close. And, of course, they got tears in their eyes. And they're all nervous up there. And it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of happiness. And I like happy. I like joy. And uh, I want you to imagine this. This is kind of a ridiculous illustration, but just bear with me. I want you to imagine a couple getting married. They're standing there at the altar, and they say to each other, I do, till death do us part. It's in forsaking all others, keeping myself only for him, for her, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, till death do us part. And marriage is really a picture of our relationship with Jesus. I want you to imagine that couple getting married. The reception's over. They get in the car and they start driving to their honeymoon. And in the car, she looks over at her husband and she says, hey, thanks, thank you so much for marrying me. Thank you. Uh, I'm glad that, um, that you want to provide for me and that you want to protect me. Thank you for doing that. But would you do me a favor? And he goes, sure. What, what do you need? What do you want? And she says, could you drop me off at my boyfriend's house? What are you talking about? We just got married. I'm glad we got married, but could you drop me off? Because that's what I really want, but I'm thankful that you'll provide and protect me. Well, that would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? But this is how we treat God. On Salvation Day, we, we say, I do. We're going to forsake all others. Keep ourselves only for you. Till death do us part. But God, would you mind dropping me off at my idol's house? Hey, and by the way, uh, this is what I'll do. Uh, if I ever need something, I'll just come in, knock on your door and ask you for something, and then you'll provide, and then I'll go back to what I really want. And then when I need protection, I'll come and I'll call, I'll, I'll pray, I'll ask you, and then you'll come and protect me as well. And this is how we often treat God is he's just a means to an end, not the end in itself. And there is a fundamental difference between getting something from God and getting more of God. And when you have God, you have everything you need for life and happiness. And I'm not saying that God doesn't want to provide for you. He just does if you're not going to replace him with it. We can't see Jesus as king when another kind of king reigns in our hearts. So idolatry is one. Number two, authority. 
Let's look back in our text. Look in verse number 53, if you would. So after Jesus had been taken away because of the idolatry of Judas, it says, and they led Jesus away to the high priests, and with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, and Peter followed him afar off into the palace of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire, and the chief priests and all the council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death and found none, because everything he did was in the light, because he was true, because he's God, and everything he does is pure and good. And for many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together because they're liars. And there arose again a certain bear false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. And of course, he wasn't speaking of a physical building, he was speaking of his own body. But neither did, so did their witness agree together, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses against thee? And he held his peace and answered nothing, because you don't answer a fool. Again, the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ? The word Christ is a title. It's not his name, it's his title. The anointed one, the son of the blessed. And Jesus said, I am, and ye shall see the son of man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. That's gonna be a great day, isn't it? Then the high priest rent his clothes and saith, what need we any further witness? Have you heard the blasphemy? What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and buffet him and to say unto him, prophesy. And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. I love when Dr. Getch preaches on this passage. He goes into so much detail about it. But how many of you figured out that our plans are not always God's plans? That his thoughts aren't our thoughts and his ways aren't our ways. God just doesn't operate on our agenda. So what drove to the hatred and to the murder of Jesus was that Jesus was a threat to their authority. He was a threat to their control. They wanted to be in control, and he was a threat to their popularity and to their money and to their position and to their power. They wanted Jesus gone. That's why a lot of people today hate Jesus. They hate that you're a Christian. They hate that you go to this college. They hate the fact that you swear allegiance to something greater than them. How many are thankful you serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords? They don't like that. They don't like that Jesus is a threat to their own power and their own control. So they don't think that Jesus was good enough to be in control. They, they cannot see themselves serving others. They can only see themselves being served. So Jesus was not murdered because he healed the lame. He wasn't murdered because he healed the sick or the blind. He was not mocked and beaten because people's lives were transformed like yours and mine. He was murdered because he was a threat to their power. He was a threat to their supremacy. They wanted to be first. Jesus taught the opposite, didn't he? In order to be first, you have to be what? Last. And of course, Jesus never asks you to do anything that he's not willing to do himself. And so he washes the disciples' feet. Aren't you glad you serve a God like that? Who'd never ask you to do anything he wouldn't do himself. And he never used his divine power to serve himself. 
He always used it to serve others. That's why God doesn't give any of us divine power. We'd make some show in Las Vegas uh, because of it. We would, we would figure out a way to make money. We would figure out a way to become popular. And Jesus came and said, I didn't come to make myself of any kind of reputation, but took upon himself the form of a servant. And here we are still talking about him today. You know the people who make the greatest impact in their city and their country are those that serve. The husbands that serve their wives and serve their children make the greatest influence and impact for good to the people around them. That's why we still talk about Jesus. Now, here's the courtroom scene. He's in front of the Sanhedrin, 70 men who represented God. And in their rules, and they had a lot of laws and a lot of rules, Jewish law said it could only be done during the day. This was done during the night. So they're breaking their own laws. They're going to murder Jesus for breaking the law while they're breaking the law. Capital punishment cases could only be unanimous. They were given three days rest before a death sentence could be carried out. They murdered him the next day. No court could be in session during the Passover. It was during the Passover. What's really interesting about this night was that there had to be witnesses from both sides. Of course, they bought their false witnesses. Could you imagine, though, if Jesus was able to have his own witnesses? Of course, if you read the New Testament, you see all the people who have been transformed by the ministry of Jesus Christ. Could you imagine if they just let his witnesses come in? And... Provide testimony of his power. Can you imagine if that happened? I mean, I would think that the, that the line would be like miles long. Can you guys picture it? So I got Jesus, uh, you get your own witnesses. I could see the first guy coming in. Hey, uh, I was blind, and uh, he healed my blindness. I could see. Peace. And he'd walk out. I could see the next person walking in. I don't know. Maniac of Gadara. Hey, uh, I'm a Maniac of Gadara. Uh, first name Maniac, last name Gadara. I had a devil inside of me. He healed me. Peace out. <laughs> and the next person. And the next person. And maybe you would stand in line. This is what Jesus has done for me. I'm telling you what, the Sanhedrin, they'd just be so tired day after day of the testimonies and the witnesses of Jesus' power in their life. They didn't want that to happen because they knew they would lose. They would lose. Colossians 1.15 says this, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions, or principalities, or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Listen, God is so much better at being in control than anybody else, including yourself. He's so much better at being in control of my marriage. He's, he's so much better at being in, in control of the church that he paid for, Grand Rapids Baptist Church. He's doing a phenomenal job, by the way. He's, he's tearing it up at Grand Rapids. He's doing a great job at Lancaster Baptist. He's doing a great job all across the world because he's better at being in control. He's better at being in control of your relationships and your school bill and your studies. I think some of my hardest years in life were here where I was working 40 hours a week to 
barely pay my school bill and to do my studies and to sit here in this auditorium, listen to preacher after preacher, barely being able to stay awake. And Shonda would stab me in the leg with her pencil every time I nodded off, you know. And it's hard. It's difficult to keep up with your studies and try to keep a social life and to pay your school bill and to wonder what's going to happen in the future. There's all these uncertainty, uncertainties, including the coronavirus. I had to add that on top of everything. But God is much better in being in control. See, what happens if we're in control is we ruin everything. We ruin everything. And so God is teaching you right now to trust him. So when I, when I came here, doctor, I'm thinking about this. 20 years ago, they were babies, like literal like infants, when I was sitting in this auditorium. And here you are, and you're learning how to trust God. And I can tell you, I can tell you 20 years later, God has grown my faith, grown my trust in him. By the way, faith is not believing God can. It's acting on the belief that he will. And as God is testing and strengthening your faith, he's going to do it more and more and more and more as the days go on. Harder times are coming, I promise. You have to learn how to let God be in control, to humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God and allow him to lift you up daily. Do you know how many times Dr. R wanted to quit college? It was so hard. And how many times in a chapel message it, it helped save, save me from quitting? It helped me from looking inwardly and start looking to God. It was building my faith. And, and I appreciate you guys keeping chapel every week. It's so vital and so important for your spiritual health. And so what caused people to not trust God? Idolatry. Believing that God is just a means to an end. Authority. Believing that I can, be, I can do better in control of my life and my future than God. And the last one I want to mention this is security. The idea of feeling safe. And I think comfort has become a God today. It's like we all desire to be comfortable, and that's, that's what we strive for. As long as it's comfortable, I'm in. If a summer missionary program or summer program's coming up and it seems kind of hard, I'd rather just go home and just be next to mommy. It's like God's trying to grow a warrior. God's trying to grow a man and a woman of God. Look, we're not called to be comfortable. We're called to be dangerous in this world, countercultural. This Monday, I'm going to be on Wood TV 8 to do an interview about churches and restrictions. And, and uh, we've had Charlie Kirk to our church. And, and uh, we've been, you know, we've been, it's, it's been crazy. We've got a lot of pressure on our church from culture and from society thinking we don't love people. I'm like, we love people. People are a triad. And you can't just focus on their physical being. They also have a mind and a soul. And I'm involved in soul care as well. And the suicide rate amongst teenagers and young adults today are far outpassing coronavirus deaths. There's something wrong with our country. Church is essential. You know, if somebody told me why my wife wasn't essential, they'd be picking up their teeth with their broken arm. And for the government to say church is not essential, which is the bride of Christ, is crazy to me. 
We trust God. We obey God rather than man. Okay? You're going to face, look, you guys are entering into some dark times in the future. But I'm thankful that greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. The darker the night, the brighter the light. Isn't that what you guys all say? Stay in Crete. Crete needs you and you need Crete. Have you guys heard that message yet? No? Oh, Brother Weaver, you got to preach Crete. Brother Hauke preached a message. He's one of the only ones I remember. Uh, He said, there's three things that will knock you out of the ministry. He goes, the babes, the bucks, and the blues. Does he still preach that one? That was a good one. That was a good one right there. I remember Brother Weaver, stay in Crete. Crete needs you, and you need Crete. But we oftentimes desire safety. We want to feel safe, right? Even with the mask mandates, it's to make you feel safe, not necessarily to be safe. But when you go through dark times, it's not about where you're at, it's who you're with. That matters. I'm in Michigan. This is the last place I ever thought I was going to live. Toby Weaver's from, he was in Michigan. And uh, I thought people lived in igloos up there. I had no idea what was up there. I'm up there. Who's from Michigan in here? Yeah, come on, let's go. GR, Grand Rapids, that's the place. The other side's kind of lame. And uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, we all want to feel safe. So we, let me tell you this story about uh, a time I had in Grand Rapids. It's really fun. Um, I took my wife to a ballet. Now, I don't like ballets. That's not my thing. And uh, she wanted to see the Nutcracker. But I didn't know it was a ballet. And so I remember getting the tickets, and uh, I took her to a really nice, fancy dinner at the uh, Amway Grand Cygnus 27, and we walked over to the DeVos Performance Hall, and we sat down. I'm like, this is going to be fun. This is so great. There's the orchestra, and then we're going to have this play, and uh, this is just going to be a great Christmas experience. And I remember when the whole thing started, all these people started dancing around. There were men in tights dancing around. That, That bothered me. I was like, what's that guy? It looked like the understudy because he had some ham hocks on him, you know? And he, they're up there, like, dancing around, you know? I'm like, what? what is this, you know? And, and there's all this music, and, and I'm really confused. And I said, about 15 minutes into this production, I said, I look over at Sean, and I said, so, are they going to talk? And my wife looked at me, and she said, it's a ballet. I said, <laughs> So for like an hour and a half, people were prancing around on stage. And then it, was, it, it ended. I was like, all right, that was great. Let's go. She said, that's halftime. I said, what? <laughs> that was the intermission? <laughs> Three quarters of the way through, she goes, do you recognize this song? I said, yeah, it was in Home Alone when they're running through the airport. That's what the... <laughs> I don't know. She's trying to tell me what's happening. And then she looked at me and she said, now you know how I feel when you watch your football. And then I got to thinking about it. It's like, I don't know which is worse, watching men in tights tackle each other or men in tights dancing around on stage. It's kind of the same, isn't it? (laughs) Now, before, I wouldn't tell anybody that I went to a ballet. But it didn't matter where I was. What mattered is who I was with. I was with my wife. 
I didn't care where I was. I don't, I don't care about being in Michigan. I love Michigan because of who I'm with. I'm with Jesus, and I'm with my wife and my kids, and God's doing a great work. It's the last place I ever thought I'd live. But, man, I love it. How many of you guys thought this is the last place I ever thought I was going to be? The backside of the desert. Like, what? Lanc Lancaster? I like what Dr. R says about Lancaster. He says, it looks just like Grand Rapids. After been hit by an atomic bomb. It's just this desolate area, isn't it? Do you still do that joke? That's a good one. I like what Romans 1.16 says. It says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. How could Paul be embarrassed by Jesus after what Jesus has done for him? Why would you ever be ashamed or feel insecure about Jesus after what Jesus has done for you. You name me one person on earth who loves you more than God. You name me one pop star, famous person out there who even knows you, yet Jesus knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows your entire being. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are his works. There's no mistake when God made you. And it doesn't matter what others say about you, and it doesn't matter what you say about you. What matters is what God says about you, your love for who you are, not for what you do. You're enough. Now, you're not enough in yourself. You're enough in Christ. And God loves you for who you are, not for what you do. I want you to watch this. There's nothing you've done in your past that'll make God love you less, and there's nothing you could do today of good works that'll make God love you more. God just loves you unconditionally. So therefore, I get to do what I do, not because I'm trying to earn his love or favor, but out of his love and favor. Christianity is not just some performance-based religion trying to earn God's love and favor. He already loves me, so therefore, I get to serve him. I get to serve. This is awesome. And I know his love for me will never change. Why would I want to frustrate that kind of grace? Would you? I know I think everything in life is performance-based, right? Almost every relationship, except for your relationship with God. Jesus was never ashamed of us. How could he? He didn't, you think about it when he was on the cross. This is God. We're talking about God here. He didn't consider how he looked, what he wore, what people said about him. When they wagged their heads, lied about him, destroyed his name. You know why? I truly believe he was just so consumed with saving you and the people abusing him to even care about himself. I like what Hebrews 12 says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. This is so awesome. Jesus counted it a joy to suffer for you and I so that we could spend eternity with him. We should count it a joy to be able. We get to serve him. And then we get to, I get to be paid to serve God. That's unbelievable to me. You get to serve God. What? How could we ever complain about it? How could we complain about what God is doing and what God's doing in our life, that we get to serve him? And it says, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, as he faced the cross, he was so consumed with you to ever even think about himself. See, when you, when you are consumed with Christ and who he is, then everything else in life grows strangely dim. It's just what happens. 
See, what lies before us and what lies behind us are small matters compared to what lies within us. You know, when you're 99 years old on your deathbed, guess who's still going to be there? <laughs> Not your idols. Let me tell you that right now. It'll be some trash heap somewhere. It'll be God. Oh, by the way, guess who's going to be there when you're dead, when you're dying? It's going to be Jesus. It's going to be God. We might as well just serve him now. After I cried out to God and complained in my dorm room, it's probably one of the best days of my life as a Christian, to be honest, because I was just being honest and real with the Lord. I went over to the lunch hall. I probably should have been fasting, but I had to eat, you know. You know me. I had to eat. And I was sitting across from a guy named Eric Pfeiffer, and he said, what's wrong? Because you could tell on my countenance. I said, man, I, I got to pay the school bill. Dr. R's on me. I don't know what to do. And he said, you know, there's a, this grocery store here in town called Ralph's. Now, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't name a high-end grocery store Ralph's. <laughs> just seems kind of weird, doesn't it? So I, I drove down to Ralph's, and I met, a, I met a lady named Laura Trojan. And she said, do you know anything about night stalking? She was the store manager. I said, yeah, I know something about night stalking. You sneak up to people's house. You look in their windows. And, that's not what I said. I said, you open the box, you put the product on the shelf, you break down the box, and you go home. She goes, exactly, you're hired. I said, no way. Ralph's, in 2003, was having a, a strike. And, uh, and so they were hiring scabs, people who had crossed the, the union lines and work. I don't know if you guys remember this. And so I got hired as a scab. She said, you're the night manager. I said, okay. And Shonda and I, Shonda, my wife of 16 years, we, we had been dating, we're getting really serious, and I'm about to be sent home. So it was, it was a really dark time for me, right here in this place. And she said, you start this Saturday night at midnight. So I, I worked that night, worked all week. This is kind of crazy, is I had Friday nights off. I'd sleep Friday night, I'd wake up Saturday morning, do do bus calling all day, do homework, work Saturday night, all night, go to church that morning, run my bus route all afternoon, do church that night, and then go straight to work that night, and then go to school. So I'd, I'd wake up Saturday morning, and then I'd go to bed Monday at 1. And I did that for months. I had to stand up in class just to kind of make it through. And so I got hired. And, and that week I worked six days. The next week I worked and got my first paycheck. And I remember opening it up, and it was for 1200 bucks. And I thought, oh, this is probably for two weeks' worth of work. No, it was for one week's worth of work. She was paying me $17.90 an hour plus overtime. Now, back then, that was a lot of money. I was making more than the professors here. And uh, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I remember walking up to the finance department, signing the back of that check, because I owed 3500 bucks. So I put 1200 bucks. The next week, another 1200 The next week, this is in October. The next week, another 1200 Paid off my whole semester in three weeks. I couldn't believe it. Worked another three weeks. Paid off the next semester. Then, then, I got another $1,200 check. This was my favorite one. And I cashed it. And I went down, and I asked Dr. Getz permission if I could do this. I don't know if you remember me going up to your office. Guy, can I ask Shonda to marry me? And he said yes. I said, this is awesome. And so I went down to Williams Jeweler in Palmdale and uh, met my friend Muhammad. 
uh, at Williams Jewelry. If you guys need good jewelry, Muhammad's the man. He's one of these guys who'd open up his jacket. He's got like watches. Like, you want some jewelry? What do you want? I got it. I hook you up. So we laid all these diamonds on this velvet cloth, and I picked one out. And that December, I went from going home to paying off my entire year and paying cash for a ring and asked Shonda to marry me that December. <laughs> and uh, our, the middle of our senior year, we got married. We got married right up here on this platform, and God has been teaching me how to trust him from that moment on. It was really a turning point in my relationship with Jesus. And when my oldest daughter got cancer, I just trusted God. And we were retreading a church of 20 people. We just knew how to trust God because of what God was teaching us through all these years. And even to this day, God has taught me how to trust him more and more. And you will learn how to do that for the rest of your life. And right here in college is where you begin that journey. Trust him. Trust him. Let God work out your faith. And uh, your greatest lessons here in college will not necessarily be in the classroom. Be God teaching you how to trust 